6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. What he actually says, what I have written will always remain written, is what he actually says. Now, what are they upset about? Pilate has gotten their goat somehow. How has he done that? Because he knows that Jews are really into acrostics. They're really into, you know, there are psalms that are acrostics. There are all kinds of, all through the Bible there are acrostics. Take the first, of those, first letter of those four words, and it is yod Hey vav Hey. The unpronounceable name of God. Now, does this mean that Pilate recognized you as the Son of God? Not necessarily. He may have just done this because he knew it would get their goat. He knew it would really upset them. And he was frustrated that they put him into this untenable position with their shenanigans. So this was his last little dagger. He did this to get them really upset. But he's labeling him. The, ru- the personal representative of the ruler of the world is... Uh, acknowledging his deity here, whether, uh, we, it, it, although inver- in, possibly inadvertently. So that's why our symbol of Christ is the resurrection symbol. He's a living Lord, and so forth. And we continue, and having spoiled principalities and powers, those are the terms of the angels that the Gnostics try, think are so important, he spoiled them. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. See, Paul is driving uh, these arguments in, into the uh, into the wrists of the Gnostics. Jesus not only dealt with the sin and the law on the cross, he also dealt with Satan. Wow. Okay. Speaking about his crucifixion, Jesus says, "Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out." That's Christ's assessment. That's not some theologian speculation. Three great victories on the cross. He spoiled the principalities and powers. Stripping Satan and his army of whatever weapons they used. Satan cannot harm the believer who will not harm himself. It is when we cease to watch and pray, as Peter did, that Satan can cause his weapons against us. The second victory is he made a show of them openly. He exposed Satan's deceit and vileness. In his death, resurrection, and ascension, Christ vindicated God and vanquished the devil. Manifestly. And his third victory is found in the word triumph. Whenever a Roman general won a great victory on foreign soil, he took many captives and as much loot and gained new territory for Rome. He was honored by an official parade known as the Roman Triumph, right? Paul alluded to this practice in his second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2.14. Jesus Christ won a complete victory and he returned to glory in a great triumphal procession. And in this, he disgraced and defeated Satan. So, you and I can share do share, in fact, uh, in his victory over, the, over Satan. We don't have to worry about the elemental forces that govern the planets and try to influence men's lives. The satanic armies of principalities and powers were defeated and disgraced. As we claim the victory in Christ, we use the equipment he has provided us. 
It's Ephesians 6, 10 through 17 or 18 uh, is the armor of God. We trust Him and we are free from the influence of the devil. There's a fourfold identification with Christ that makes it not only unnecessary but sinful for us to get involved with any kind of legalism. It's not only ineffectual, it's also um, sinful for us to get legalistic. We're circumcised in Him, we're alive in Him, we're free from the law in Him, we're victorious in Him. There are some caveats I want to throw out here, though, so we don't get carried away here. Where does character and integrity fit in? We're saved by Christ, great. Well, what, wait, 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 wait a minute. What, where does character and integrity fit in? One of the biggest adjustments I've had in my life, going from the corporate boroughs, I was on 12 public boards, I was 30 years in public, uh, I was chairman and CEO of six different public companies, and from that world, coming out of that world into professional Christianity some 20 years ago, the shock I had is the change in morality and ethics. Not talking to theology, I'm talking just ethics, integrity. The boardroom had far more integrity than I have experienced in professional Christianity. That's a scathing indictment. It, was, it took me a long time to, to adjust and realize most of that's lack of training, but still, character integrity seems to be lost in all the theology. Do we need to keep appointments? Absolutely. Should we honor business commitments? Absolutely. There are people that are more rigorous in their commitments in the secular world than I've experienced in the, in the Christian world. What does it mean to be a fiduciary to our brothers and sisters? The word fiduciary is not even in the vocabulary of most Christians. Putting the other, it's, it's the doctor-patient relationship, the attorney-client patient, it's where you put your person's interests ahead of your own, being a fiduciary. If you're a manager or a director of a public company, you're a fiduciary for the collective shareholders, not just your constituent interests. To our employers, if you are not a Christian, you owe your employer 60 minutes for every hour paid, no problem. If you're a Christian, you're not a fiduciary, normally, in America at least, unless you're a manager or a director of the company, then you're a fiduciary for the company. Unless you're a Christian, because then you're even an employee as a Christian is a fiduciary of the company. That's what Christ talks about in Ephesians uh, chapter 6, uh, the first few verses and elsewhere. See, we are called to holiness and obedience, nevertheless. And we need to put that in practice. And that's not legalism. Being diligent in your commitments isn't legalism. Let's not confuse ourselves. It should be our thanksgiving offering for what He has already done for us, to be diligent in our commitments. If we say we're going to do it, don't say you're going to do it unless you're sure you're going to, and then if you do, do it. And if you show up, if you're scheduled for a meeting and you can't make it, you call the guy and let him know you can't make it. Don't just let it pass. And so on and so forth. There's just practices that are standard practices in the, in the, 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 the senior levels of, of corporate management that are vacuous as far as the average, the average um, uh, environment that many find ourselves in. So he, he leaves three warnings in here. Let no man judge you. Let no man beguile of your reward. And let no man enslave you. And so we're going to deal with each one of those in our next session. Not next session, section. It's still, don't go away, you know. But we are going to sort of focus on a segment here called uh, extern religious externalism. There are some issues here. Should we worship on Sunday or Saturday? Anyone that thinks that's a simple issue hasn't studied it. Hasn't studied it. Can we eat shrimp and pork? Orthodox, you can't. Can you? Can we have a glass of wine with dinner? 
Do we need to keep the feasts of the Torah? It's wonderful to celebrate the feasts of the Torah, to learn about them and celebrate with our Jewish friends because they all have not only historical implications, they have prophetic implications. And you get all into that, it's fun, except pretty soon you're starting to talk yourself into keeping the Torah. You want to worship on Saturday rather than Sunday? Great. That doesn't mean you keep the Sabbath in the Jewish sense. And so on. There are issues that you want to deal with here. Colossians says, let no man therefore judge you in meat or food or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of Sabbath days. The Jews recognize new moon as a major thing each month. And they also have a, a, a Shabbat every Friday night through Saturday sundown. And that's their practice. And those are valuable experiences to indulge in. Don't go from that to the requirement to, be, to, to get to the 613 commandments and all that. Paul gives you the license right here. Colossians 2.8 was important when you memorized. 2.16 is also one. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of any holy day or of new moon or of the Sabbath days. You want to worship on those days? Great. But it's not a requirement. You don't have to keep the Torah. You're not under the law. Not are you not under the law. The law ain't there anymore. Let's talk a little bit about the origin of kosher laws. You know, the kosher, the kashrut, as they call it, is all through the Torah. Separation. If you go to a Jewish home, or you'll find there's two icebox, one for the dairy, and one, you, they have all that business. And some scholars believe that this is all out of a misunderstanding of Exodus 23:19, you know, not to uh, uh, seep the, the, the kid in the mother's milk. What was that all? The whole system is all built on that one little verse, believe it or not, which many scholars believe was simply to prohibit a common pagan practice back in the early days. The Boimph, which is, uh, uh, is among the ancient Zabi'i, Ishmaelites, and still among some Arabs, that they had this practice of, and it was to prevent that pagan practice that that instruction was given, but out of this a whole rabbinical empire has been created. Okay. And uh, and you can get, do some background on this if you want to. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentaries cover this. A lot of others do too. A kid's seat in his mother's milk was used by certain pagans to propitiate the deities. Milk was sprinkled on the fruit trees, fields, gardens to improve the crops of the coming year. It was a pagan practice that they were not to indulge in. But that gets built into this whole monument called the kosher laws. And uh, so, did you know that Abraham served a non-kosher meal to the Lord? If you want to harass your Jewish friends, remember Genesis 18, 7 and 8. Because Abraham serves a kid and milk in a meal. That's a non-kosher meal. And they have a tough time weaving an answer to that. You know. Now see, Reformed Jews regard kashrut as no longer meaningful, but often accommodate some indifference to their so observant guests. In other words, they don't take it seriously, but they yield to it just to keep the peace with their, their neighbors, so to speak. Okay? But there's an interesting group of people you need to know about. I discovered these, I think it's fascinating. They're called the Karaites. Among the groups that protested against the rigidities of Talmudic Judaism were the Karaites. They were led by Anand ben David in Mesopotamia, sort of a Jewish Luther kind of guy, in 740, uh, in the 8th in the, uh, eight, eight century, uh, uh, late 8th century A.D. 
they would not accept the so-called oral traditions. They insisted upon sticking with the Torah as recorded by Moses. So they didn't accept the Talmud, which is coming out, it's coming out about that time, by the way. And, he would not, they, and they defended the Torah and the prophets as the sole source for religious doctrine and practice. So you say, okay, these are the, you know, the conservatives. And beginning in the 8th century Persia, it spread to Egypt and Syria and later to Europe through Spain and Constantinople. So why am I getting into this? Because in 19th century Russia, which was undergoing pogroms on the Jews, the Karaites had so distanced themselves from Talmudic or rabbinic Judaism that they were relieved of the double taxation, they were exempted from military conscription, and they were permitted to acquire land. I think this is very ironic. You see, the ones that were really faithful were immune to all the abuses. The abuses were levied on the Orthodox Talmudic Jews. So, and uh, the Leningrad Codex, which is a very valuable document to all of all, all of uh, uh, biblically interested people, uh, the oldest the oldest complete Hebrew Bible, was acquired through their their efforts. Interestingly enough. Well, we'll get back to them when we talk about Judaism here, but we are freed from the law. God does not condemn those who eat everything. Ask, in fact, ask Peter about that. Kill and eat, right? And uh, God says that all foods may be eaten since they were created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. That's 1 Timothy 4. The teaching that forbids this, Paul wrote, is taught by demons. Wow, be careful with that one. Those that are forbidding you to eat certain foods for religious reasons, apparently, according to 1 Timothy 4.1, has its roots in demonology. And Christ has disarmed them in any case. Okay. Now we have Sunday versus Sabbath. Now we have a whole briefing on this. Anyone that thinks that's simple hasn't studied it. But you need to understand there's no commandment in the New Testament establishing the sacredness of the first day of the week. The early Christian church, there's evidence they honored both of them. But to honor the first day of the week, Sunday, as the day, uh, day of the Lord because He was resurrected, no problem with that. But don't presume that's Shabbat. That's the first day. Shabbat is the seventh day. So ordained in Genesis long before there was an Israel, by the way. Okay. The Shabbat, the Sabbath, was established as a memorial of the creation the whole Sabbath thing is honoring God as creator. And you really won't understand how to worship the creation until you spend some time with your Messianic friends on a, a Shabbat celebration. It's a great experience. That's not the same thing as keeping the Sabbath. There's a difference. And uh, it established uh, the memorial of the creation. It also uh, memorializes the deliverance from Egypt. Sunday, of course, in contrast, is the day of the resurrection. And that is so acknowledged, obviously, all through the Gospels. Six of the eight post-resurrection appearances were recorded in the Gospels on a Sunday, but not all of them. Not all of them, interesting. So is that a big deal? Don't know. Depends which side of that debate you're on, you see. And uh, the Feast of Shavuot was on the morrow after Shabbat. That's the way it's defined in Leviticus 23. It's the morning after Shabbat after Passover. Passover could be any day of the week depending on where the 14th of Nisan fell. After Passover, there is a Shabbat. The next morning is the Feast of Shavuot. Well, that's always, if it's the morning after Shabbat, it's Sunday. That's what we call Pente Pentecost. It's, and the, the, that 
that uh, feast anticipates the birth of the church. And so it's interesting that that indeed is always a Sunday, celebrating the resurrection. That doesn't make Sunday, is, there's no ordination of Sunday as a special day other than just practice. People have chosen to worship on that day. That's, that's great, okay? So now there are a lot, some that suspect that the rapture may occur on that day because of some traditions about Enoch being translated on his birthday. And uh, so we have all this covered in the Peace of Israel things. Sunday is a day of worship. It's astonishing to realize the New Testament has very little to say about this. There are only three references in the New Testament about this. Paul's visit to Troas, Paul's command to the Corinthian church, and the Lord's Day that appears in Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse 10. Paul's visit to Troas. He arrived after the Feast of Unleavened Bread and remained there for seven days. That Sunday evening, and by the way, that's no longer the first day if it's evening. You follow me? Small point. Um, the church gathered to break bread, and Paul gave a farewell address to them that lasted until after midnight. And you guys seem you have a long problem. When I go too long, Paul preached for six hours. They needed a C-360, I guess, or something to tape all that. But uh, so after the miraculous resuscitation of the guy that fell off for, uh, the thing, they continued until daybreak. And some suggest that this was actually a Saturday evening for some technicalities. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. In any case, Paul's, uh, the, the second one is the command of the Corinthian church, which is interesting. Everybody quotes this, but the point is he tells them to take his collection so that they avoid gatherings when, uh, uh, gathering money when I come. So they're gathering the money, you know, on Sunday so it won't interfere with his visit. So is that a proof that they're somehow worshiping on Sunday? Not exactly. It's not a denial, but it certainly isn't a support either. So, And then the Lord's Day is a mistranslation for many, I believe, in Revelation 1. It's the day of the Lord, not Sunday that it's talking about, that, uh, that uh, John is talking about in Revelation chapter 1, the day of the Lord. Okay. So it seems that both Sabbath and uh, Shabbat, if you will, and Sunday were probably venerated by the early Jewish Christians, but the church very quickly becomes very anti-Semitic, strangely enough. And that Sunday emerged as a distinctly Christian observance, if for no other reason, it, it, to get away from the Jewishness. Let me prove it to you. If you tried to worship the, on, on Passover as a Christian, celebrating what we call today Easter, but that's a bad label. But the point is, if you insisted upon doing that, you were excommunicated. You were called a quartodeciman, which is a Latin for fourteens. If you tried to observe Passover and celebrate the resurrection of Christ the morning after Shabbat, after Passover, the way the scripture lays it out, you were considered, uh, you were excommunicated. Big debate going on. The church in the early years developed these elaborate formulas to try to create what we would call Easter in such a way that it would never fall on the proper day. And there were all kinds of you know, arguments of how to go about that. They tried very hard to make it non-Jewish. It's a strange, strange thing to research. Any good encyclopedia will give you the background of the quarter decimals. I encourage you to do that. And then we could go to more quotes and stuff. Sunday was a pagan day, by the way. And uh, Sunday was the label from the ancient Babylonians, of course, for a lot of reasons. And uh, it was a popular among Romans, especially since the soldiers, which was Mithraism. There was actually three different sun-worshipping groups that Constantine had to deal with. And Mithra was the god of the sun, regarded Sunday as a sacred day. There's actually two other similar kinds of groups. In 321, Emperor Constantine 
moved the capital of the world from Rome to Byzantium, as you know. But he also declared Sunday as the imperial rest day. He has a bold stroke administratively because for the first time he was trying to unite the empire. And he made everybody happy. They got a day off. Slaves never got a day off. They now had one day in seven. All the sun worshipers, three different groups, were delighted. He made that an official holiday. The Christians were coming out of the caves. They weren't an official state. Really, that was the second successor after him. But uh, they uh, uh, got a day to worship the Lord by Constantine as an administrative fiat to, to help unite the empire. Not because he was converted. He didn't get converted until his deathbed, apparently. And even that's debated by some. So anyway, so there's a lot of different current views. I won't take you through all of those. But Christianity certainly has its roots in the Old Testament. As Sunday seems to borrow many of the practice of the Sabbath, setting aside as the seventh day to worship the Creator. That's Shabbat. It's a, it's, a, it's a sort of substitute. But Paul clearly teaches that the Sabbath was part of the Old Covenant that was done away in Christ. You need to understand that. So you don't keep the Sabbath. You can honor the Sabbath. You can worship the Sabbath. But that's a different thing. There's not the slightest hint that Christ or the apostles changed the Sabbath from the seventh day to the first day of the week. So, that's, so don't let that part of it confuse you. And the liberation from the law, was a dispute, that, that dispute was resolved in Acts 15. It was not any of the requirements for the Gentiles. They're d detailed. And this Colossian passage explicitly condemns those who command Sabbath obedience. There's a difference between observing Sabbath and being required to, if you follow me, because you're not under the law. And people say, Chick, well, what do you do? Very simply, my wife and I, we decide, we've, we set aside Friday night through Saturday night. We set aside Shabbat. We decide that whatever we're going to do, we do deliberately. And we do it together. And there are no other rules. That's the way we deal with it. And not religiously. It depends on my travel schedule, among other things, and what have you. So uh, it is, but it's, it's, a, it's a joyous thing to realize that that Sabbath was made for man. You're the one that gets blessed by it. And something else you, to give you a complete picture is something you should understand. In the millennium, the temple, that's all detailed in, in uh, Ezekiel 40 through 48, is not open on Sunday. <laughs> the temple in the kingdom, when Christ is ruling, will be open on Shabbat and the new moons, not any other day of the week. So this idea that Sunday replaced Shabbat is not biblical either. Okay, So I'll leave that with you as we move on. There's a, there's a whole packet of the seventh day if you really want to get into this. If Paul finally realizes we, these are all a shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ. A shadow of things to come. That's the, in the Greek the term from which we get the word photograph. And uh, as Paul put it, the Old Testament law, including the Sabbath, was only a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality or substance, the soma, if you will, however, is to be found in Christ. The Old Testament foreshadowed, Christ fulfilled is the basic model here. And the shadow of Ischia is only an image cast by an object which represents its form. Once one, once one finds Christ, he no longer needs to follow the old shadow. The Feast of Israel, every element of the Torah, is not just historically commemorative, but prophetically significant. Everything in the Torah points to Christ. Every day, and it's a fun study to get into. Whether you're talking about the cities of refuge, or the daughters of Zelophehad, all these bizarre little rules you discover when you peel that onion are all predictive of the Messiah. Mashiach HaNagid. Okay. Let no man judge you. Let no man beguile you of your reward. Now, can you lose your reward? 
That's an issue. Can you lose your reward? We said we talked about we talked about justification. You can't lose that. Can you lose your reward? And if so, how? Well, that's going to be. We've been through the first half of chapter two. The last half, a small group of six verses, we're going to take in the next session. And let me tell you, it's going to be quite a tour. Because we'll go through the whole hist uh, history of Judaism, how we went from Mosaic Judaism to, Talmud to uh, Pharisaical Judaism, how we got to Talmudic Judaism, how we got to the Kabbalah, and how it got to Hasidicus. It'll just be a profile. But there are some interesting lessons for all of us as we watch that transfiguration. And, uh, and we'll also deal with a number of other issues. So in our next session, study Colossians chapter 2, verses 18 to 23. When someone is disillusioned by the self-imposed blinders and myopia of contemporary science, you probably know some people like that, or if they're frustrated by the moral bankruptcy of unbridled materialism, where do they turn? Where do they turn? If you get frustrated with the emptiness of a falsely defined science, or if you get frustrated by the moral bankruptcy of our materialistic culture, great, okay. To what do you turn? And the answer may surprise you, and we'll discuss that next time. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we just thank you again for the abundance that you shower upon us in your word. We do pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you would reignite in each of us a renewed hunger, a new passion for your word, that we each can continue to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our coming King. We do pray, Father, that you would help each of us to be more effective stewards of the opportunities that you bring to us as we commit ourselves without any reservation whatsoever into your hands, indeed, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord, our Savior, our coming King, in whose name we do pray. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Colossians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. 